Sonic weapon refers to a category of devices that leverage intense, sometimes focused, sometimes dispersed, sound to annoy, deter, injure, incapacitate, or kill someone. Most sonic weapons emit a sound that can be heard, at least within a very narrow area, but others are technically ultrasonic in that their effect results from a sound that is too high in pitch for the human ear to process. The consequences of such weapons, however, can still be incredibly effective, even when the target doesn't hear the sound that is harming them. The simplest of these weapons, as tends to be the case with many different sorts of weapons, are often the most brute force and powerful. They're generally devices that blast extremely high-volume sound waves at an enemy, rupturing their eardrums, causing them severe pain, disorientation, and in some cases, even knocking them unconscious or killing them. Like with guns and missiles and nukes, though, the more advanced, more recent applications for these technologies have involved scaling the effect down to make it more tactical. Rather than blasting someone to a pulp with sound, newer sonic weapons are used to make people feel pain without causing physical harm, or to make those on the business end of the weapon feel nauseous, disoriented, dizzy, or uncomfortable in some way that they can't quite explain, all without actually hurting the person beyond experiencing that sensation. The use cases that have emerged from some of these scaled-down weapons include burglar deterrents that use high-amplitude sounds to basically make burglars feel so uncomfortable with increasing, consistently growing pain in their ears that they go away. We've also seen longer-range versions of these devices used on the high seas to blast pirates who try to attack cruise ships with what amounts to a massive speaker that shoots focused sound at targets, leveraging deafening noise to dissuade attackers while also potentially causing permanent hearing loss to targets that are within the radius of the sound beam and within about 300 meters or 1,000 feet of the weapon. There have also been instances of sonic weapons used to disperse crowds at protests and other public gatherings. During the G20 summit in Pittsburgh in 2009, and during the Dakota Access Pipeline protest in 2016, police used sonic weapons, similar to those used on cruise ships to deter pirates, on crowds of protesters in an attempt to get them to leave the area without the risk of direct confrontation or the possibility of bodily injury from other non-lethal weapons like rubber bullets and high-intensity water cannons. Immensely scaled-down versions of similar devices are also used by some shops in the UK to deter teenagers from lingering around malls and other public spaces. These devices aren't likely to cause hearing damage, but they do emit a tone that's high-pitched enough that only young people, people whose eardrums have not yet been battered and made less effective by age, are likely to hear, which means it's basically a high-pitched, annoying tone that, in theory, causes youths to avoid that space that the sound occupies when the device is turned on. There have been interesting adjacent studies attempted to determine if some paranormal activity in supposedly haunted locations can be explained by very high or low frequency sounds, undetectable by human ears, but still affecting the people exposed to them. 
An infrasound researcher named Vic Tandy, for instance, worked at a supposedly haunted laboratory in Coventry where ghostly gray apparitions were frequently spotted by visitors and determined that an extractor fan in the area generated infrasound or low-frequency sound beyond the limits of human hearing. And he posited that it was possible that such a sound could cause vibrations in human eyeballs that could cause distortion in these visitors' vision, leading to the perception of apparitions. Now, that's all purely speculative right now. There is research indicating that the pieces of that theory could all be true, but it hasn't been researched and tested enough for us to be able to say with anything anywhere near certainty that that's what's happening. But it's an interesting thought regardless. Also interesting though in a more horrible, frightening way, are studies that have shown that high-intensity ultrasound, which, again, is sound at frequencies higher than what the human ear can process as hearable sound, it can cause lung and intestinal damage in mice. It's also possible to adjust the heart rate of animals by blasting them with vibroacoustic stimulation, basically sound that can be felt as subtle vibrations, causing heart problems like atrial flutter and bradycardia. So with the right sound weapon, you could conceivably damage an opponent's internal organs or make their heart beat at a different rhythm, make it beat irregularly, skip beats, or even slow down somebody's heartbeat with such a weapon. It's also been determined that exposure to constant, low-frequency tones for periods of over 15 minutes can deleteriously impact the brain tissue of humans and aquatic mammals, which pass through pockets of such sound more regularly than similar creatures up on land, though it can supposedly happen to land-based animals as well. This is thought to be the consequence of vibrations outside the body interacting with pockets of air that vibrate at different frequencies inside the body. And that effect is amplified when the vibrations in question are as immersive, dense, and high pressure as those surrounding someone or something that is spending a lot of time underwater. The consequence for some of the aquatic animals and diving humans that were exposed to such sounds has been what's called encephalopathy, which is a broad term meaning basically brain dysfunction of some kind but which in this case refers to brain damage caused by consistent mechanical strain to the brain tissue. So the actual matter of the brain is stressed by exposure to this sound, which causes it to operate non-optimally, at least for a time, and can cause neurological diseases, temporary conditions like migraines and nausea, and in some cases more serious trauma akin to suffering from a long-term concussion. What I want to talk about today is a story that's been in the news lately, which may involve sonic weapons, but which may, potentially, involve something else entirely or nothing at all. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from Ars Technica, and it's entitled U.S. Pulls Two More from Cuba Amid Puzzling Health Cases Now Affecting China. That headline probably won't make a whole lot of sense unless you know something about the story leading up to this story. So let's start there. 
Back in August 2017, reports began to percolate up out of the diplomatic world and into the press that American and Canadian personnel working at their respective countries' embassies in Cuba had been experiencing some bizarre health conditions, potentially symptoms of some unknown illness for about a year since late 2016. At the time, 22 Americans and around 10 Canadian households were affected, with the purported victims suffering from nosebleeds, hearing loss, headaches, dizziness, memory loss, and nausea, among other symptoms. As this news attracted more headlines, the bizarre story became progressively more bizarre, with government officials and non-government experts speculating that it was a sonic attack by the Cuban government, or it was some other spy organization, probably an ally of Cuba, trying out some new device in a place where they knew they would get away with it. Or it wasn't a sonic attack, but some kind of biochemical attack, or a virus, or some other kind of pathogen-based weapon or exposure. The Trump administration and Trump himself have stated that they believe Cuba is behind whatever's happening. And in August of 2017, they expelled two Cuban diplomats from the United States in response to the issue, based on that belief. A month later, they pulled all non-emergency staff from the embassy in Cuba and put out a travel warning for Americans wanting to visit the country. In March of 2018, the U.S. State Department announced that they would keep their staff in Havana at their minimum possible levels indefinitely. Just enough people in the building to perform the basic diplomatic and consular functions due to concerns over future possible attacks. In the months since, some politicians, including Senator Jeff Flake, have said that there is no evidence indicating that the illnesses these diplomats experienced are the result of an attack. Others, though, have towed the official party line, saying that they believe the president's statement that it was an attack, and have pointed to the findings of a State Department medical director who claimed to have, quote, all but ruled out mass hysteria as a cause of the strange illness that has sickened 24 U.S. Embassy staff, end quote, to defend their position. Meaning, essentially, that something happened and it's not just in the minds of those people who were affected. That became the official government stance based on this report. Many medical professionals outside the government, though, have contested that statement, including Robert Bartholomew, who is a medical sociologist specializing in mass psychogenic illness, which is the more modern term for what was once commonly called mass hysteria. The claims in this space have gone back and forth with most skeptical science-focused publications, demonstrating why what happened is probably psychosomatic, not an attack, but a type of very common group behavior. And most of the mainstream press, both those editorially aligned with the current U.S. administration and those that tend to be more left-leaning or that typically fall squarely in the middle, have written about these cases as if they are the result of an attack with the possibility that it might be something else merely mentioned in the margins. In March of 2018, a team of computer scientists at the University of Michigan made news by claiming to have solved the mystery of these potential sonic-based attacks, saying that they were actually, probably, the consequence of malfunctioning surveillance equipment placed by the Cuban government in the U.S. Embassy, or that maybe they were the result of that equipment conflicting with American surveillance equipment, 
So basically, all the tiny listening devices were messing with each other's operational frequencies and creating what amounts to an undetectable or barely detectable humming or buzzing or shrieking in the air that with long-term exposure could cause some of the symptoms that have been described by the affected staff. This explanation also has its detractors, of course, and recent happenings in China, the topic of that original article that we can now talk about, having laid out that foundation, arguably makes that theory, the it's-just-malfunctioning-spy-devices theory, a lot less likely. So up until this point, all of the impacted personnel had been in Cuba, most at the U.S. Embassy and some at the Canadian Embassy. This piece, though, describes similar cases, similar symptoms, and staff hearing strange, unexplained noises before experiencing those symptoms at an American consulate in Guangzhou, China. The revelations about these new cases were published around the same time as U.S. officials announced that they would be pulling two more employees from the Cuban embassy after these employees reported symptoms and experiences similar to those that were experienced by the original 22 staff that were pulled last year. Another piece in Ars Technica, published about a week before this one, talks about Mark Lenzi, an American security engineer officer at the Guangzhou consulate who disputed the initial State Department assessment that these sorts of illnesses outside of Cuba were only ever reported by one employee who was evacuated and sent for medical testing after coming forward. Lindsay claims that the State Department knew full well that it was not an isolated case. A quote from that article goes on to describe Lindsay's personal experiences. Quote, he, his wife, and two children were evacuated on Wednesday, June 6th. He said that he and his wife had suffered unexplained headaches and sleeping problems since the end of last year. About the same time, the first unidentified evacuated employee reported experiencing problems. The couple also reported unexplained sounds, similar to marbles rolling around a metal funnel. Since the health alert, more employees have come forward reporting such noise episodes and symptoms, including dizziness, headaches, tinnitus, fatigue, cognitive issues, visual problems, ear complaints and hearing loss, and difficulty sleeping, according to the State Department. Those symptoms are generally consistent with those of a mild traumatic brain injury. End quote. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have been screening workers at the Guangzhou Consulate in recent weeks. Around 150 of the 170 workers at the facility have requested such screening. And at the time this article was published, eight of them had been evacuated for further testing back in the U.S. A new health alert, similar to the one in Cuba, has been posted for U.S. personnel working in China, asking that anyone who experiences symptoms similar to those that have been reported thus far come forward and report them, and that they not try to find the source of the sound, but instead get out of the area as soon as possible and consult a medical professional. In the meantime, the cause of these unexplained symptoms have come to be referred to, in U.S. government documentation at least, as health attacks or specific attacks. Earlier reports referred to them as sonic attacks, but speculation about sonic weapons 
have spun down in the meantime. Even some of the experts who thought it to be a likely possibility early on have since recanted and said that it was actually unlikely, as sonic weapons that could cause these sorts of physical effects would probably need to be massive and would thus be fairly obvious to at least some of the now several dozen people who have experienced symptoms. There are a handful of utterly fascinating angles from which we might approach this story. The one that I'd like to start with, though, is maybe one of the stranger ones. So bear with me on this. What if it's aliens? What if some unknown force, some new weapon that causes brain damage and can cause that damage from a great distance using gravity waves or quantum foam or some type of energy or material we haven't even caught a whiff of yet is being used on very small groups of people and very volatile, politically charged locations on Earth to get us riled up and angry at each other, suspecting each other of dirty spy tricks and new outlandish weapons to get us to drop diplomatic ties and increase the weapon stockpiles that we have pointed at each other, so that in time, we will be at each other's throats and easier to conquer. Now, this is an incredibly unlikely scenario, but I bring it up because it serves as an extreme example of a theory for which we have no evidence, but which is nonetheless possible. It's possible that aliens with powers we don't understand are messing with us for reasons that we can't possibly fathom. But most of us tend not to jump to that kind of conclusion, in part because there are so many leaps of logic that we would have to make to arrive at that specific conclusion, and in part because most of us default, at least most of the time, to a heuristic, a mental shortcut called Occam's Razor. Basically, we decide the simplest explanation, the one that makes the fewest assumptions, is probably the correct one. And more often than not, because assumptions are new variables that serve as weak points, points of failure for a particular theory, all else being equal, that tends to be a good decision to make. In this case, aliens with gravity beams could be causing brain damage in U.S. consulate employees living in China for kicks or conquest or some other totally unknowable purpose. Or these symptoms could be the consequence of some other, simpler, more down-to-earth and non-alien related reason. And most of us, I think, would probably consider it a lot more likely that some human actor, some government or terrorist organization, is behind such a thing. Because we know that these types of groups, these types of entities, exist. It would take several more leaps to not only assume aliens exist, but that they are here, they are watching us, and they are keen to attack us in very strange, roundabout ways that have seemingly no galactic implications. I wanted to start by presenting this possibility, which again is a possibility, no matter how unlikely it might be, because it demonstrates on a somewhat over-the-top cartoonish level what a large number of government officials and journalistic entities have done in response to this series of events. From the very beginning, instead of reporting on a collection of symptoms occurring in groups of people in isolated locations, the framing of the story has been that the personnel at these political facilities in volatile locations have been targeted by some unknown entity, whether by sonic weapons or chemicals or viruses or spy devices, 
The Trump administration amped up this rhetoric when discussing the topic, focusing more on who's at fault, who is doing this to us, than on the symptoms and circumstances themselves. And this administration seemingly went out of their way to find evidence to support the opportunistic, antagonistic theory for what's causing these symptoms. There had to be an enemy doing this to us. Similarly, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, journalistic entities that are very highly regarded and which tend to be more reliable than most when it comes to reporting on these types of things. We're not talking about Breitbart or Fox News or MSNBC. These well-regarded journalistic entities reported on the situation in the same way that the administration did. In a few cases, they gave credence to the possibility that maybe this was a mass psychosis situation, or that perhaps there was some cause that was not related to international relations or covert military activity. But in almost every piece, the story was reported through the lens of espionage and spy versus spy intrigue. They essentially said that this attack was maybe not an attack, rather than saying that this thing that happened, that is as of yet unidentified, could have been an attack in addition to many other things. And that framing is important because it influences the way that we go on to see the story. It warps our perception of what's most likely, of what's the most likely simplest explanation for something that has occurred. The assumptions that we're making, that someone wants to do this to us, that these types of weapons or devices exist in the first place, those are being presented as fact rather than as the assumptions that they are. All of which is particularly pernicious because we actually have another Occam's razor explanation here, that of what was once called mass hysteria. Now, why is this the simplest explanation? Because we know it's a thing that happens. It's real. We have tons of documentation of this kind of thing happening throughout the ages. And we know that it can cause these types of symptoms and that it can be contagious psychologically in the way that these symptoms in these scenarios seem to be contagious. For this particular collection of happenings, the assumption of some new weapon, of a sonic device that's way different and far advanced of the sonic weapons that we already know about, that's the aliens. That leap is the rampant speculation that, yes, could absolutely be true, but we have no reason to assume that it's true. And it requires several massive leaps of logic to arrive at a place where, instead of this thing that we know is real being the culprit, this thing that we don't know is real, that we don't even know whether it's possible or not, is instead what we are saying is the truth. It's the equivalent of claiming that aliens are responsible for these attacks or that demons possessed the townspeople in Salem during their famous witch trials. That something is possible does not make it likely. And when we are trying to assess the truth of something, it's prudent to keep all possibilities in mind to leave ourselves open to the potential that we are facing an out-of-context problem, something way beyond anything that we have ever encountered before, like what the Aztecs faced when the Spaniards rolled up on their coast with their guns and armor and massive sailing ships, or what we might encounter if aliens from another solar system were to appear in our atmosphere one day with lasers and teleportation and bodies made of diamonds. It's important to consider that that could happen, and we will have to come to grips with some greater reality than we knew existed before. But almost always, the simpler explanation will be the right one.
in most cases, that strange thing that we are encountering is actually based on our existing realm of experience. In most cases, it's not demons. It's psychology. In most cases, it's not exotic sonic weaponry, but something that we already know exists and can fairly easily explain. And it makes a lot more sense to focus on those more likely possibilities than on just any random thing that's also possible but not likely. I mean, it's true that there are an infinite number of possibilities here, but that does not mean we should present all of them on equal footing as being equally likely based on our understanding of present-day reality. That's why it's so disappointing when not only government officials, who are frequently wrong about science and health-related matters to begin with, and who are also frequently swayed by political considerations and calculations when they discuss such things publicly, but also real journalists from real, legitimate, non-propagandized publications. It's disappointing to see them take the bait on these sorts of issues and amp up one relatively unlikely possibility and use that as the lens through which they report on all the other possibilities. If we are presented with these facts and possibilities embedded within the connotation that it's probably aliens just messing with us, that then skews all the other possibilities. After all, we've already been told it's aliens. However unlikely that possibility might have sounded if it was presented as only an afterthought or in the comment section below the real story. And in this case, now that we've been presented with these facts through the lens of it being a sonic attack, the story becomes less about figuring out why these people are experiencing these symptoms and more about the politics and intrigue of who's attacking the U.S., and what these presumed weapons can do. Who has the most to gain? Who could pull off this kind of op? Who might be trying to trick us, making it seem like it's one group when it's really another group? All of which are quite possibly nonsensical considerations, and all of which turn us away from the real details of this story, to instead fixate on entertaining storylines and probably pointless speculations. It's a very disappointing approach to see demonstrated by news entities that are generally a lot more reliable than this. And I'm not saying here, by the way, that this means you should distrust everything the news says and everything that journalists publish. In general, the more reliable journalistic entities get this sort of thing right, or more right than most, most of the time. But I am saying that even those sources that you trust can get things wrong sometimes, or distort things without meaning to. So it's worth keeping your eyes open and your mind turned on. It's our responsibility as individuals to ensure that this information that we're taking in is as pure and accurate and undistorted as possible. And watching out for this sort of thing is one of the ways that we do that. Another interesting facet of this story is the prevalence of conspiracy theories that have come to surround it. There have not, to my knowledge anyway, been any serious pronouncements that this scenario is the work of aliens, but there has been widespread public speculation about how it's probably the work of the Cubans, or maybe, due to these new revelations, the Cubans and the Chinese, or maybe just the Chinese with the help of the Cubans, or perhaps the Russians, working with the Cubans and or the Chinese, or maybe it's ISIS or some other terrorist organization trying to stir up antagonism between governments so that we'll all fight each other and allow them to take over. Like the other aforementioned potentialities, sure, these are all 
possible scenarios. It's possible that China is working with Cuba to either generally mess with the United States or to try out some new kind of sonic weapon that they plan to use in small, annoying ways or great, big, devastating ways. That's something that could conceivably happen. It's just not very likely compared to the other possibilities. Conspiracies are compelling for a lot of reasons, but I find they're particularly compelling to people who like to solve puzzles and understand foundational truths, who like to pull back the curtain and figure out what is really going on in the world beyond the superficial level that most of us spend most of our time on. Something I learned about myself a long time ago, actually, is that if I'm not careful, I am prone to a sort of conspiracy thinking because I tend to just naturally want to slam disparate pieces of information together to see what the bigger picture looks like, to better understand the world. And that biases a person toward seeing connections that are not necessarily there. Now, as a consequence of that, I've come up with my own set of heuristics, my own mental shortcut reflexes for dealing with my speculative predisposition. First, I remind myself that conspiracies do happen and are often, by necessity, utterly complex and ridiculous. I'm reminded of a wonderful quote by the magician Penn Jillette anytime I think about conspiracy theories. He said, quote, Sometimes magic is just someone spending more time on something than anyone else might reasonably expect. End quote. This is often true of conspiracies as well. Some of the big, impressive, seemingly unlikely conspiracies actually prove to be true, but they remain obscured for a very long time because they just seem too cumbersome and outlandish and stupid to have been feasible. It seemed unlikely that anyone would go to such absurd lengths to accomplish something. And the more moving parts they have, the more likely they are, in theory at least, to fail or to be unearthed. But those big, complex systems are also more likely to seem fake, because again, who could imagine putting that much effort into something so bizarre and big and complex when surely there would be a simpler route that they could take? And that allows some of these sprawling Rube Goldberg-esque conspiracies to remain overlooked at times. So conspiracies are possible and they do happen and sometimes they sound nuts but are real nonetheless. But I also find it's important to remember that very often those who speculate about conspiracies are not doing so from a place of an informed insider, but rather from the perspective of an imaginative outsider, someone who sees a bunch of pieces and revels in combining them in interesting ways, ways that could possibly work, could explain the superficial parts that we see from the outside, but which we have no real reason to believe are the actual truth beyond wanting to believe them. Each theory is just one of countless possible explanations for something that seems, from the outside, to be missing a more complete explanation. Typically, if you take a close look at the connective tissue of these conspiracy theories, they fall apart pretty quickly. They misunderstand the science, they get a date or time wrong, they imbue the people who are supposedly involved with superhuman powers or impossible backstories. This tendency is a bit like deciding the exact shape of an iceberg, not by mapping the parts that lay beneath the surface with sonar or by diving underwater and taking precise measurements, but by pure creative speculation. You decide what the subsurface portion of the iceberg looks like based on what you see up top by using your imagination, and then you adjust the facts that you discover later so that they adhere to that original prediction. Now, ideally, of course, 
We do the opposite. We decide on nothing for certain and allow the facts to fill in the blanks, testing each supposition along the way and discarding those that do not pass muster, rather than discarding those that do not fit within our idealized, imagined fantasy versions of what might have happened. And then finally, I found that identifying what I want to be true, what some part of me thinks would be interesting or cool or groundbreaking, were it to prove to be the case. The theory that I'm rooting for, and in some ways am hoping is real, for whatever reason, I try to identify that ahead of time, and I then require additional proof, even more than usual, before I allow myself to believe pieces of that story that seem to back up the theory that I had ahead of time. The purpose of this habit is to attempt to correct for the bias that I will be bringing into this research, this learning experience, because of what that part of my brain that likes to solve puzzles is telling me, is predicting, is theorizing. I will almost certainly be subtly slanting the information that I take in in favor of that initial theory of mine. And because of that, I require more proof, not less proof, when it comes to data that seems to fit within that original schema. This recognition of bias and the additional effort tends to pour cold water on the cool but unlikely theories that might arise. And it also helps me keep tabs on at least some of the perception warping that's happening within my own brain. It almost certainly doesn't entirely counteract it, but it does seem to help alleviate some of the worst effects of this type of speculation. This process, by the way, is applicable far beyond this specific storyline. If your initial bias is that it's sonic weapons that were used at these embassies, and that concept clicks right into place in your mind, and all future information is filtered through that framing, understanding that about yourself will help you keep an open mind, and will help you change your opinion as new information becomes available and warrants it. But this also applies to things like, for instance, the ongoing theoretical Russian scandal, which possibly involves Russian agents influencing the U.S. election, either directly or indirectly, getting Trump into office, bribing numerous government officials and business people, hacking the U.S. governmental infrastructure, blackmailing Trump into breaking up the EU and removing sanctions from Russia, and isolating the United States from world politics and the global economy alongside countless other efforts that, if true, would be frankly very impressive accomplishments for a country with a GDP smaller than that of Texas. I bring up this particular storyline in part because, by some people's estimations, it's actually connected to this main story about sonic weapons and embassies. There are people who think the Russians are continuing their campaign to mess with the West by employing sci-fi weaponry to scare diplomatic employees, which could, in turn, fracture governmental relations. But I primarily bring it up because it's a series of stories that have become part of a collection of conspiracy theories that are prominently held on both sides of the political aisle here in the U.S. Those on the left, in particular, have concocted an impressively sprawling conspiracy theory that joyfully gobbles up any new headline, integrating it into the larger picture. If this Democrat-fueled theory is to be believed, Russia is responsible for essentially everything that goes wrong in the world. And they've become true international puppet masters with nefarious purposes and unlimited power and reach. Now, the truth of the matter is likely more of a gray area. 
The Russian government, under Vladimir Putin, has proven itself to be wily and clever and has innovated upon warfare and espionage in several ways in the past decade or so alone. Part of the reason many of these innovations came to light is that Putin's government is reliant on patriotism and die-hard support to stay in power, and if their light were ever to dim, they could be replaced just as easily as they ascended. So there's some truth to their implementation of spycraft machinations, their novel use of technology and tactics, and their desire to pull apart the alliances that have left them less wealthy than they would have otherwise been, and less able to leverage Soviet-era power that they would like to have back. That said, much of the Russia-related scaremongering is almost certainly just that, imbuing this one country with that much power, and Putin himself with all the depth and malignancy of a Disney villain, is neither productive nor, in all likelihood, accurate. It's definitely a possibility, but if it's something that you immediately believe, if you are taking in information through the lens of it being true, ideally you require more proof, not less proof, in order to demonstrate that it's actually true. The danger of building up these sorts of conspiracy theories in our minds is that at some point, we come to see the world through that lens of this being real, and any piece of information that doesn't fit within that schema is discarded. Any alternative is ignored, and any data that tries to shift our worldview away from something that's become structural to our understanding of essentially everything is reflexively cast aside as propaganda or disinformation spread by idealistic know-nothings who are not as wise and clever as we are, or spread by people who are in on the big conspiracy. And we just happen to be smart enough to notice this and to understand what's happening. All of which is to say, this is not a political thing. This is not a national thing. It's a human thing. We as humans have this tendency, and it's perhaps stronger and more vibrant in some people than others, but we all do it. We soak up information that supports what we already believe, and we ignore, typically not consciously, but subconsciously, information that would challenge our worldview and force us to reassess our understanding of the system. These biases and prejudices and preconceptions all, no doubt, have benefits alongside their downsides. They can help protect us, can help us root out the solutions to puzzles, the very same dispositions that can have us believing incredibly unlikely conspiracy theories also help us believe in ourselves and our ability to achieve against all odds. They help us imagine the great societies we might build, despite our present circumstances being less than perfect. They help us learn from past experiences and to at least attempt to predict what will happen next based on incomplete information. But these systems also lead us to make incredibly bad decisions and can cause us to hold opinions and loyalties that are harmful to the very things that we believe we believe. It can cause us to misalign our actions from our intentions and to tribe up with all the downsides that can emerge from deciding that we have this one very specific in-group and everyone else is different from us in some way that we have decided is more meaningful than all of the other things that we have in common. The mind is a powerful thing. And that's true in this sense and in many other senses. One of the most likely causes of the symptoms those diplomatic employees have experienced, after all, is a type of brain-based behavior. It's similar to the placebo effect in that, yes, sure, it's all in their minds, 
But because the mind is so powerful and integral to the rest of our bodies, it's possible to trigger an immune response by just believing that you have taken effective medicine, even when it was just a placebo, a sugar pill. And it's possible to cause brain damage, or what looks like brain damage, through the means that we have available to test such things even if there was no sonic weapon or other external influence. Just our minds playing tricks on us because of weird sounds that we heard, stresses that we experienced for days on end, and rumors that we heard about other people falling ill. Similar things have happened before, and Occam's razor suggests that this internal culprit, even though it's perhaps the least sexy of all possibilities, is most likely the true one. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Space Opera, and the author is Catherine M. Valente. And the premise of this book is pretty straightforward and kind of hilarious off the bat. And the entire book is very funny. It's very lyrical. The prose in it, the the writing is just incredibly florid. It's wordy and dense, but in a hilarious, casual way. And the concept is basically that all sentient life forms in the universe went to war with each other at one point and realized that was not a good idea. And so they decided collectively that a better way to redistribute resources on a regular basis and compete with each other was to have kind of an intergalactic, all sentient creatures involved Eurovision or X Factor, America's Got Talent. I, I don't really know all the names of these reality shows, but kind of like a singing performance competition where each species brings its best performers and pits them against all the other performers in the known universe, and then they win this massive prize. They take home those resources for their species, and importantly, they are not obliterated, because whoever loses, whoever's dead last in this competition of all the species, is completely nuked out of existence. They are considered to not be sentient, and the idea is that by destroying them, it gives their home planet the chance to come back with something better, some species that can produce a better performance, that can produce better culture. And humans on Earth hear about this very suddenly, a very short time before the next event is set to start, and they are presented with a list of human performers who the aliens think might do well, and most of those performers are dead, except for this one little British band that was very popular like a decade ago and is now no longer together, no longer performing, no longer writing anything, but they are dead last at the end of that list and the only available performers who the aliens feel might do well in this competition. So this is a story of that band, and the way the story is told is just as important. It really is hilariously described and phrased, and reading it is not at all difficult and incredibly pleasant. So that book, again, is called Space Opera, and the author is Catherine M. Valente. It's definitely worth picking up if you're looking for a fun and not-too-serious read. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. I'm going on tour soon, and you can find the tour dates and locations and get your tickets if you care to at becomingtour.com. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on social media at Colin is my name. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week.
Thank mm-hmm. you.